Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to another who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those that revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. So again, happy Easter. At Easter, it's, I think, most appropriate to ask, uh, what gives you hope? An equally appropriate follow-up question is, how resilient is your hope? Uh, how circumstance-proof, to put it differently, is your hope? Does your hope only depend on how life goes for you, up or down? Uh, and how, as we say, in terms of jobs and perhaps finances, how recession-proof is your hope? How circumstance-proof is your hope? Put differently, what's the timeline of your hope? Is it only short-term hope or even a lifelong, but nevertheless, it's temporary hope, even if it's to the end of your life? And because it's only to the end of your life, it eventually expires and passes away. Or is your hope audacious enough to aspire to be eternal in scope? Perhaps at times you feel like Job did, the great sufferer in Scripture, but when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. You try to hope, but life throws curveballs from out of left field at you. But the good news of Easter is that Jesus changes everything about hope. He changes everything, period, but especially about where we find our hope, what to hope in, who to hope in, the timeline of hope, not just to hope for this life while on earth, but to hope on the scale of eternity. And human hope, just human hope, at worst, it's just wishful thinking, is it not? And realistically, at best, you have to work hard to turn your hope into reality in terms of human hopes. Christian hope is radically different because first, we receive hope through Christ, and we're invited to participate in the hope that is guaranteed by Christ's one perfect work. And it doesn't ultimately depend on our merit or effort. So today, it's my prayer that our hearts might cry out by faith. Christianity is first a response of faith. And that we might respond even to today's scripture that we'll get into with words like this, Lord Thank you. Thank you because you've given me a reason to hope. I hope that's happening as we're celebrating Easter, even through the songs we've sung, the prayers that have been prayed and the scriptures read. Why thank you? Because gratitude is a sign of faith. If you can find a genuine heartfelt gratitude for what Christ has done for you personally by taking your place for your sins on the cross, if you can see with the eyes of your heart this wonderful, beautiful thing that Jesus has done, and you're grateful for it, that demonstrates that you believe. And belief is faith. And what are we grateful for by faith at Easter specifically? 
Specifically, it's that Jesus has given us a reason to hope. In short, Easter is the reason for our hope. Easter is, in fact, the greatest reason for hope, period, in this life. The dictionary definition, if I could just cheekily quip, should be changed to Easter. But belief by itself, is, it's just a strong thought, and you need to back up belief and faith with action, a changed life with good works. And so it's also my prayer that our faith might overflow into a good work, a real change in some manner as this. Lord, thank you for, you've given me a reason to hope, so help me shine my hope in you. That's the call of the Christ follower, to shine this hope demonstratively, concretely. And so for the rest of our time together, because of Jesus' resurrection, I want to ask, how is Christian hope uniquely better than all other hopes? Whatever hope you have today, human hope that you're trying to make reality with your own hard work and effort, how is the hope because of Jesus' resurrection uniquely better than all other hopes? And I want to draw out my best from uh, what we've read of Peter's letter today, at least four things that Jesus provides the truest and only lasting happiness, courage, a living hope, different from human hope, and a best self. Okay, we'll get to that. The call to Jesus' church then is to proclaim and point to his near kingdom with regards to this hope that Jesus provides the one true lasting, these four things. And so when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, for the true Christian, that should most of all stir up hope for the best life to come and the surest meaning to make the most of this present life. And as Jesus so wonderfully famously said in his Sermon on the Mount, we're to be salt and light by faithfully pointing to this truest hope. So to our friends who haven't oriented their lives around Jesus as a center and his message yet, first, again, uh, just to repeat myself, we're so happy you're here. And we want you to see that Jesus truly does provide a unique hope better than all other hopes. And I hope you're able to leave today with a clear understanding of his heart for you, even if you're not ready to give him your whole heart. But we hope that today even might be the day. And for my friends, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that your hope would only go brighter and deeper in Christ. So, how is Christian hope uniquely better than all other hopes? First, Jesus provides the truest and only lasting happiness. And it's Jesus' resurrection that, that definitively, that, that, that births this. Now, where do we see it in the text? Let's look at verse 13. We're picking up and just continuing along in Peter's letter. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Focus on this word, blessed. You'll be blessed. Now remember, Peter is writing to Christians who've been spread out because of persecution for their faith in the Roman Empire. They're going through difficult times as they're sincerely trying to do right before God. But there it is. Peter says, you will be blessed. Meaning, this word just literally means the deepest happiness. And it's the same word that Jesus uses that the, the deepest happiness that he envisions as he opens up his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger for th and thirst for righteousness and on and on. And so specifically, Peter is describing a life set here on doing right and doing what is morally right and honorable in God's eyes. 
And as you're doing that, life doesn't work out the way you envisioned. And yet in the midst of life being difficult, this kind of seeming even unfairness of life, Peter encourages us, don't worry. This is where true happiness is at. You will be blessed. There's a popular book in the 1980s. Some of you I know weren't born at that time, Um, but it was republished in the 2000s, so it's still relevant to you. Uh, When Good Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. And he has three main points. First, he observes that most people don't believe they deserve the bad that comes to them because most people generally think they're good people, and so why is life being unfair to me? Shouldn't I get some better karma in life? And his answer to them is that some things just happen according to the course of life, especially when it comes to sickness and disease and nature. Second, Kushner says, stop trying to find a reason to explain why bad things happen. Sometimes there just isn't a good reason, he argues. Believing that trying to offer pat reasons for people's suffering is potentially and even patronizingly hurtful. And finally, Kushner argues, you can't change the past. So instead, try to learn from your suffering and become a better person for it. You can change who you become as a result of your difficulties. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge uh, that Rabbi Kushner's argument, it does have a comforting vibe and perspective. And I appreciate his heart to try and help people find happiness in the midst of their suffering. But there's something fundamentally flawed to Rabbi Kushner's attempt to comfort and lend happiness. The flaw is that the hope and happiness that Kushner's offering is temporary. His argument only offers hope and happiness for this life. If you can just wrap your mind around that perspective and try to apply it to your circumstances, it might help, but it's only for this life. He only tries to offer a perspective to get you through one more day. He doesn't and can't guarantee a final triumph at the very end. But when Peter says, you will be blessed, he's offering something audaciously different and better than Kushner. Peter points to a hope that will be fulfilled permanently in the end and happiness that lasts forever. You will be future tense. Peter says, notice, you will be blessed. Peter's pointing us to a future, an eternity. And so what Jesus has done is he has defeated temporary and he provides eternal. So it's important, and I try to teach this to my kids. What, how do you, what is happiness for you? And if you, even if you try to understand where the word happiness comes from, it's built on happenings. What happens to you, if good things happen to you, it generally makes you happy. Happenstance. But I think what we really want is for happiness to become foreverness. That's the happiness we should really want, should we not? Happiness that lasts forever. True happiness should be happiness that doesn't fade, is unperishing. Wouldn't you agree? Then what you really want is not happiness, but foreverness. And forever, foreverness depends on what's forever, on a glorious, irrevocable, good future. And that's what Peter is promising that you will be blessed. And Jesus's resurrection is the proof, is the evidence, because God raises Jesus from the dead, defeats death. Death is the wages of sin, meaning now God has defeated sin itself. He has defeated temporary. 
Jesus' resurrection is living proof that Jesus provides the truest and only lasting happiness, foreverness, because he himself has defeated the most severe symptom of temporariness, meaning death. Well, next, how is Christian hope uniquely better than all other hopes? Jesus provides the truest and only lasting courage. Now, I bring up courage because Peter addresses it. Where do we see courage in the text? We actually see courage by way of its opposite, fear. Look with me. It goes on now, who is there to harm you? They're going through tough stuff in life. If you are zealous, meaning passionate and committed to what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, you will be happy. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. There it is. No fear, meaning courage. A fruit of the genuine spirit-filled Christian life is no fear. From little fears to big fears, The Christian life provides a courage in the face of fear, especially death. Don't you love the phrase, nor be troubled? Troubled means an anxious mind, a perplexed mind filled with doubts. I hope you hear Peter's pastoral heart for you in these words. Peter's desiring for you and the church to be filled with peace. In today's text, Peter specifically comforts Christ followers to have no fear of those who would oppose them because of their faith, and ultimately no fear in death. So here's a potentially touchy question, but I don't fear asking you. I want to courageously, but caringly and lovingly ask you with as much of the same heart of Peter, the apostle and pastor, a potentially uncomfortable question, but I have to because it's my job, it's my calling to preach the gospel and, and apply it to our hearts, to hold up Christ and his gospel as a mirror to our souls. So here's the question. What, what have the past three years taught you about yourself? What did COVID teach you about yourself? Now, from where I'm standing, I have to admit, I was very surprised at how many people are fundamentally driven by fear. Fear of death fear of losing rights, fear of not having enough toilet paper, fear of blank, you name it. But the Christ follower has the joy of having the truest and only lasting courage. Why and how? Why? Because it's like when you already know the end of the story, it completely changes your confidence when you go through the precarious, uncertain, dark, twisting, turning valleys of life. If you know the end of the story, it's like when you watch a movie over again and you know how it goes for the end, the protagonist, but they're going through like a moment where they might die, but you're not worried anymore. You know how it ends. You know how it's going to end. So you gather your heart and press on one step at a time. That's the why. So how? I think Peter provides the answer in verse 15 as he continues his thought here. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's the how. I think what Peter means when he says, honor Jesus the Christ the Lord as holy, focusing on the holy part first, holy means set apart. Holy means different. Holy means Uh, Yes, uh, consecrated, set apart, different, meaning 
if in our hearts we set apart Jesus Christ the Lord as holy, he really is different from the rest. What he offers, what he provides, it is different because it's lasting. It's different from all the rest. Put differently, because Jesus is resurrected, because he's defeated death, and the only one to have defeated death permanently, Jesus has the one true ending of a story that stands apart from all our self-centered attempts at writing a happy narrative for ourselves. He alone has written the ending, the ending of history, and, and he is the glorious, making all things well and new victor. And he invites you and me to have our lives, have our stories beautifully intertwined with his story of all stories. That's what Peter means by, but in your hearts, honor Christ. That has to be in my heart. I want my story to be part of Christ's story. In your heart, Christianity begins making a difference when you let the person and story of Jesus into your heart. When you start letting his narrative shape yours. So let me try to make the point more relatable with a few examples from history. Perhaps you know these names, and these are just, it's just skimming the surface. But Christians who simply followed the courage of their Christian conviction, their hope inspired by the Christ who had changed their hearts and saved them. I'm grateful to the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity for this list. Florence Nightingale. If you've ever had an injury or illness and were treated by a nurse, you can thank Florence Nightingale. Her name has become synonymous with helping people in need, and that's largely due to her lifetime of work. Nightingale was motivated by her faith to be a social reformer, a statistician, but she is best known for her role as the founder of modern nursing. A courageous Christ follower did that. Her motivation was the care and compassion she had experienced in Christ. And so she journals, God called me in the morning and asked me, would I do good for him alone without reputation in this work of caring compassionately for people as he has cared for me? Just some other interesting examples. Charles Dickens, a believer in Christ, a notable literary giant. He found joy in writing epic stories, Oliver Twist, The Christmas Carol, that reflected God's redemption. And his faith was the foundation of all his work. In the version of Jesus' life, he wrote for his children, he said, no one ever lived who was so sorry for all people who did wrong or people who were in any way ill or miserable. For Dickens, faith in Christ meant acting out of Christ-like empathy, using what was in his hands to better the lives of others. And so through works like A Christmas Carol, Dickens is credited even now, not even an influence in the world of literature and making novels a wildly popular form of reading and entertainment and creating some of the most indelible characters in fiction. A courageous Christ follower did that. Galileo. He was an Italian astronomer, engineer, and physicist who is credited as being the father of observational astronomy, the father of the modern scientific method, father of modern physics, and in the spirit of the Reformation that was going on at the time, he also countered the church. 
And with a great view of God and his universe, he took scientific understanding to a next level. A courageous Christ follower did that. George Friedrich Handel. Some people joke after Jesus Christ, the name most associated with Messiah must be Handel. He brought Christian musical excellence and messages to the secular theater. For Handel, there was no sacred secular divide, no reason why houses of entertainment shouldn't also host the praises of God. In fact, we're better to sing worship than a building dedicated to the wonder of music. Handel's faith is what spurred him to excellence. And he's reported to have said he was so sorry if he only entertained his audience, wishing instead for their lives to be bettered by receiving the message of Christ. A courageous Christ follower did that. Now we can go obviously on and on and on, and we haven't even scratched the surface. And and I know that some of you are thinking, well, there are a lot of non-Christians who have shaped history too and, and you know, positively influenced, no doubt. But what I'm saying is something stronger here. But let me instead quote an atheist, or who was once an atheist when he was writing this, Tom Holland. And he writes, while studying the ancient world, I realized something simply. The ancients were cruel and their values are utterly foreign to me. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. How do we get from there, the ancient world, to the world that I'm experiencing now, that I'm blessed by? And Holland admits as an atheist, it was Christianity. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. And in fact, Holland argues that the Western world as we know it would not exist without Jesus Christ and Christianity. Now look, I mentioned just four Christians in history who shaped and influenced our culture, influenced culturally because of their faith and our civilization. But the real question is, how did they become Christian in the first place? And so even beyond Christians who have just beautifully blessed culture, the gospel bearers, the gospel messengers are the real heroes. At some point, beginning with Jesus Christ, and then the three women, and Peter and the disciples, and the apostles, and the early church, and then on and on, all the martyrs and witnesses and evangelists and those answering God's call through the centuries, being gospel bearers and messengers, these people who did good and spoke good to signal what we can hope for beyond this temporary life, what we can hope for in eternity as we look forward to and hope in Christ's kingdom. And so, just again, scratching the surface, the ad, ad Niram and Anne Judsons of history, the Dr. Livingstones, the Horace Underwoods, and Henry Appenzellers, who have a special place in my heart because they were the missionaries to Korea, the Mary Slessers, the Hudson Taylors, the Amy Carmichael's, the Dr. Nelson Bell's, the Eric Liddell's, the Darling Rose's, the John and Betty Stam's, the Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's, the Gladys Eilwards, the Brother Andrews of the world, and countless other Christians 
who have answered God's call to take the gospel to unreached places without reputation. And we could go on and on and on about just now, even as Christianity spread, missionaries from other ethnicities, other cultures that I failed and haven't done justice to in mentioning here. But these are the ones, the gospel bears, some even losing their lives that paved the way for the Florence Nightingales, the Charles Dickenses, the Galileos, the handles of the world. A Christian courageously did that because they believed in the risen Jesus and their courage has purpose and lasting fruit for not only this life, but because they know their labors follow them into eternity because they're united to the risen Christ. What a joy. What a hope. Moving on then, how is Christian hope uniquely better than all other hopes? Because Jesus, the risen Jesus, provides the truest and only lasting living hope. Living hope, resurrected hope, hope that will not die with this life, but will last into eternity. Comes part and parcel with the resurrected Jesus, a living hope. And where do we see this in the text? So Peter goes on, always being prepared. The context is, some might oppose you for your faith, continue to live out your faith. And as you're doing so, be prepared to make a defense. This word, it's not the best English word perhaps, but it's where we get our English word for apologetics. But it means a, a reasoned, considerate uh, explanation. To anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, what does Peter mean? Focus on in you. He does not mean a feeling. The strongest hope is not a feeling. It can't just be a feeling. As we said earlier, it can't just be wishful thinking. The strongest hope is not even a firmly anchored belief. Because strong thoughts and beliefs can come and go. The strongest hope is when hope is truly part and parcel with an absolute unalterable truth that keeps you afloat through all of life's up and downs. In this way, Christian hope is uniquely and radically different because it's not just a feeling. It's not just even a belief. It's an absolute unalterable truth in the person Jesus Christ. The person that even secular, non-believing scholars attest to the historicity and the evidence of witnesses, 500 witnesses and all the others who saw and, and just giving credibility to the proof that is in the Bible. The absolute unalterable truth, just as, as good Canadians, we take pause to remember veterans and appreciate our freedom on Remembrance Day because of history that happened even more profoundly because of history, because of Jesus, this unalterable truth of fact. Because our hope is anchored in him, the person who is an absolute truth. We have an unshakable hope. We receive hope through Christ. And we participate in this hope that is guaranteed because of the person, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't ultimately depend on our merit, 
or efforts. So let me put it this way, just to try to um, get you to appreciate the scope of this hope. If you could go back in time and change something in your life, reverse something, what might it be? The audacious claim of Easter is that God will redeem that situation, that past, that hurt in a way that makes sense to us when we look back from the vantage point of eternity. In the final analysis, at the very end, God alone can redeem that. Isn't this why Peter bursts with praise at the beginning of his letter? The reason for the hope that he wants us to be able to explain, he really is just tying it back to how he started the letter. This is back in chapter one. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. That's just another way to say we are resurrected in our hearts to a new life, to a new perspective, to a living hope. And why is it living? Because it's tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's looking to eternity, not just temporary for this life, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Those are wonderfully powerful words. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter proclaims that our greatest hope is through the resurrection of this person, Jesus Christ. And one can rightly understand Peter's letter, his whole letter, if you want a framework for it and just a lens to read through it again. Peter's letter is all about what it means to live in the light of Jesus' resurrection. His first letter is thematically, really, truly an Easter letter. And this, it's not just, again, meant to be a feeling or a belief, something we just that warms our hearts once a year on Easter Sunday. But there's, there's concrete benefit. And so that's why I want to suggest to you, how is Christian hope uniquely better than all other hopes? Jesus provides the truest and only lasting best self. Now, I say best self because it's a popular term these days. Even at um, my kids' schools, they talk about, they try to exhort the kids, be the best version of yourself today, right? Trying to uh, inspire them. And it's something that our culture uh, wants and goes after. But if you really want your best self, it needs to be, again, a true, a lasting best self. Not one that will expire when you pass away, but something that will last beyond this life. Now, where do we see Peter pointing to notions of being some better version of yourself? And he goes on to say, as you are testifying to this reason for your hope, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There it is. The qualities that Peter describes here, that this is, this is someone that I want to be. I want to be known to be gentle, but strong and respectful, be able to state my position with respect and with a good conscience. So meaning I have clearly uh, clear thoughts for myself. And Peter goes on to say even very specifically, make sure there's good behavior. If you're a Christ follower, make sure that people know you for your good behavior in Christ. 
Meaning you're becoming a different person because of who Christ is in your heart, in your life. Don't you know the kind of person, the kind of character that Peter calls Christians to be? Gentleness, respect, and Peter here again is talking about the kind of witness, the defense, the explanation we're to give about our hope in Jesus Christ. So gentleness means never forceful, never condemning, never morally superior, forgetting that we all desperately need grace. And so even if you've been a Christian for seven years, you, there's a humility and just a wonder to grace. I still need as much grace as even this friend who still doesn't believe. Respect certainly means the dignity of telling the truth, not sugarcoating, not leaving out the hard parts of the Christian message, not leaving out what might offend. But respect certainly means dialoguing and seeking to conversationally understand one another. And good conscience following Jesus provides us clear good conscience like no other because you walk redeemed by God Almighty and Most High Himself. Hey, if God says you're good, you're good. You don't have to worry so you can walk in that clear, good conscience. And so the world longs for their best self. People long to become the best versions of themselves, but the gospel says that the truest and only lasting version of your best self is in union by faith with Jesus as your Christ because Jesus is the first person that God vindicates, validates, and raising from the dead, giving him that new body that is going to also be ours in the new creation. And so Jesus is the first fruit, the first evidence that God wants to bless us with this gift. And so I end today just repeating these beautiful words of Peter. This is the Easter hope. That Easter history we read from Mark, what happened there, that event, it transformed Peter. The Peter who just spilled out and just gushed this letter. And now he's leaving for you and me how to live in light of that resurrection and to be changed just as he was. So take these words in. I hope these words could be your Easter praise today. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you because you've given us a reason to hope. And I pray that all of us here and more of the world could understand this very unique and the one eternally lasting reason to hope and a hope that will truly be fulfilled. The one hope that will guaranteeingly be fulfilled because it's tied to the absolute truth of Jesus, the person in history who came and died and you raised him from the dead. So help us now 
to shine our hope in you.